Good afternoon, and welcome to Deep in History. This is Marcus Grodi, the president of the Coming Home Network International. I'm joined by uh, my co-host, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson, the, uh, what's the right term, Monsignor? Retired Ordinary of the Ordinariate? Um, well, I, they gave me the title Ordinary Emeritus. There we go. So, whatever that means. <laughs> but, but thank you for joining me, Monsignor, uh, and all of you who are, uh, thank you, thank you for diligently uh, l- sticking with us during this discussion of Irenaeus's against heresies. Um, is if you've been following this, you see it's not the exact format it would be if we were teaching a course on it. It's much more reflective and more conversational. And uh, to me, the, in the context of being deep in history, accomplishes two things as opposed to, let's say, sola scriptura, where a sola scriptura attitude might be, all I have is the Bible, and that's all I need. But a deep in history perspective recognize that, for example, the scriptures themselves are, are inspired and of the Lord, but to truly understand what they say, we need two things. We need the history of the author and the context in which they were written, and then, I guess maybe more than two things, a third thing, a second thing would be the history of how those scriptures have been understood for the last 2,000 years in the church and how they've been a part of sacred tradition. But then thirdly, how does that scripture, what's the correct way of understanding that scripture in the context of today? Because if you're reading any scripture today at this time in July of 2020, given all that we know is happening in our culture, it would be a different way of understanding that scripture if we happened to pick it up in 1950 or in the year 1900 or in the year 1800. And Monsignor, I think that applies very equally to the study of a, of a classic work like Against Heresies. And it's what we're trying to do here. And um, yeah, and I think we can give St. Irenaeus credit for being one of the very earliest in the church um, to insist on what we, you know, what came to be called the analogy of faith, um, that um, you, don't, you don't set one part of the tradition over against another. It, it all hangs together. It all speaks to the same reality, um, which is the, the word of God that, that created it all and supervises it. And um, and so we'll see a few passages today as we're working through that really hammer home this point, you know, that the, um, the patriarchs, the prophets, the words of Christ, the teachings of the apostles, the teachings of the church, all of it, all of it is, it is in a, it's harmonious. It hangs together and, and it would be, it would be wrong for us to, um, well, for instance, 
and take one passage and uh, one part of scripture and interpret it against another. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Again, this was written about 175 AD. So this is before so much that we take for granted in the church. Every Sunday we say the Nicene Creed. Well, the Nicene Creed hasn't even been coined yet by the, some yeah. of the issues that were being battled um, in Alexandria and, and Antioch that led to the eventually the Council of Nicaea uh, weren't even happening yet when Irenaeus wrote this. So we got to be careful not to read back into this. So, But on, what we see in here are the acorns of the oaks that grew later in the development. That's a great Newman expression or right. metaphor. Well, the, the, we're looking at some of the acorns here. But but we're seeing some of yeah. the oaks already as as Irenaeus, a hundred plus years after the death and resurrection of Christ and the early apostles. So now if last week's episode, in which we focused a large part of our time on chapter twenty-eight, if the, the subtitle of last week's episode was Such Things We Ought to Leave to God, I guess maybe the subtitle of this episode would be some more things we ought to leave to God. Because Monsignor, it, wouldn't you say that one of the overall biggest problems of the Gnostics was in far too many ways stepping beyond what God has left for us to focus on through his revelation to us? Yeah, and uh, to put it in, I suppose, in very modern philosophical terms, you know, the Gnostics were the ultimate positivists. <laughs> um, everything in the whole universe, everything can, they, they have the ability to discern and judge and order it. Um, it almost sounds like um, a modern university education. Boy. And there, sorry about that. <laughs> well, and and there are people out there on in the news, and I, and I I tend to agree that they're saying so much of what we're experiencing in our present chaos has come to us because we lost the educational institutions over the last fifty years. And it's interesting that you say that because, if you will, maybe the first quote that I would draw the audience's attention to today is on page 176 of Keeble's translation. It's a part of book two, chapter 28, the, toward the end of section three. And we just, I pulled this one simple quote out of this long argument that Irenaeus says, in which he says, this answer then rests wholly with God. Yeah. This answer. Because look at... Look what se the sentence before it. What were the workings of God before time? No scripture declares. So, I mean, mystery. There's mystery here. And, and we await um, that part to be revealed to us in and, heaven. And as we mentioned, audience, we mentioned this last week, and this is why... This book is, I find, so personally important because when we look at history, this is the, the second century. When we look at the battles 
that happened between theologians and bishops in the 3rd century, in the 4th century, in the 5th century, 6th century, 16th century, and as you mentioned last week, in the 21st century, so often it's because they're not listening to Irenaeus's advice. That the things yeah. that we're battling over, grace and faith and works and justification and sanctification and all these other issues, these answers rest wholly with God. They're mysteries. So often Christians are are divided over, it's either this or this, it's this or this. But the mystery is often, it's a both and. It's a both and. You know, what comes first, grace or faith? Uh, and people argue over that. Well, when you step back and you realize that's in God's hands, what are we responsible to do? We're responsible to believe whether grace came first or not. Our responsibility is to is live holy lives, whether grace happened first or not. We, we believe that grace came first, but that doesn't matter so much as believe. Yeah, that's a very good point. And that's so much of that I think Irenaeus is going to be saying here, guys. You're getting distracted. Distracted. What we'd like to do today is there's so much in really is there's a lot in book two and I I the more I read it the more I find and, uh, and of course Monsignor's number one goal in life is to get us to book three and um, I'm just being facetious here Monsignor but uh, uh, but but uh, we still think we'll probably need this in the next section to finish book two because there's just a number of issues here so that I think worth and we have to jump over even a, a, a number of important issues in book two, but just to pull a few things out. The next se- a place I'd like to draw your attention to is over on page 177, se- section four, with this quote uh, pulled out of the context of, of Irenaeus's argument. It's, a, it's about six lines down. He says, yes. And you would fain relate in words the births and productions both of God himself and of his thought and word and life and of Christ, and that, understanding them no other way than by what happens to men. And the reason I jumped out on this one, Monsignor, was because, you know, once again, they're they're getting into areas that the answer rests wholly with God, you know, the births and production, both of God himself. I mean, just pause for a second. The birth and production of God himself and of his thought and word and life and that of Christ. So these are, these are things beyond us. But Irenaeus points out that they're doing this in no other way than by what happens to men. So there's part of our limitations as human beings is our only experience of life is through the senses that we have. And so we get caught up in trying to project what we know from our experience onto God. Right. Yeah, and um, yeah, in theology, we'd, we'd call that the, an anthrop- 
anthropomorphic um, error, um, uh, our experiences doesn't, what we experience just doesn't get us there. Yeah. And, and, and he, throughout these pages, um, St. Irenaeus keeps going on about how inconsistent the, the Gnostics are. They, they talk one way, but then they behave in a totally different way. And here is certainly a, an inconsistency on their part. And this is after they've spent, they've spent so much time decrying the body that it doesn't matter. But yet, it's, it's the basis of how they um, arrive at their ideas about God. It, I was just going to comment that, and this hasn't gone away. This remains a problem throughout the history of the church. It still goes on. As people try and understand God and the way he works and his will and his mercy and his love and his compassion, yet his sovereignty. Uh, you know, how is it that if God has predestined everything before the beginning of time, then why pray? Right. You know, because we only understand things from our perspective. How do we understand one God and three persons? How do you, how do we understand that? We don't. How do we understand that 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 uh, that host that we receive onto our tongue is the very creator of the universe? How is that possible? Well, if we're going to limit ourselves to this, our sensual understanding of reality, we're not going to get to that. Maybe the best we can do is transubstantiation. That the accidents stay the same for our senses to see, but the true substance behind it is something we can never measure through our human experience. It's God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we're left with a mystery. It's a both and. But yet not the both and. we got to be careful because the both and of the Eucharist it, it, it isn't 100% bread and 100% God. No, we don't go there. So in the end, this answer then rests wholly with God. Period, Irenaeus says. It's a wisdom we have to hear. And the spiritual life calls for humility. I mean, throughout these pages, he's talking about that. Yeah, it's behind this whole thing. Uh, The next section, if you jump to page 178, section 6, and I'm Monsignor, I'll go ahead and read this long, about 15 lines. I've got the whole thing highlighted, underlined. There seems like a lot of stuff in here. And in many ways, this is where he really emphasizes exactly what we're talking about. Again, page 178 of Keeble. Section 6. And ye, absurdly puffed up, say boldly that ye know the unutterable mysteries of God. Whereas even the Lord, the very Son of God, allowed that the Father himself alone knows the day and hour of judgment, saying expressly, of that day and hour no man knoweth, not even the Son, but the Father only. If therefore the Son felt no shame to refer to the Father the knowledge of that day, but spake what is true, neither let us be ashamed to reserve unto God those points in our inquiries which are too great for us. For no man is above his master, 
Should anyone therefore say to us, How then is the Son produced of the Father? We tell him that this production, or generation, or utterance, or manifestation, or by what name soever one may denote his generation, which cannot be declared, no man knoweth. Not Valentinus, not Marcion, not Saturnus, not Basilides, nor angels, nor princes, nor powers, but the Father only who begat, and the Son who was born. Since therefore his generation cannot be declared, whosoever strive to declare generations and emanations are not in their right senses, professing to declare things which cannot be declared. Monsignor. Yeah, I had, there were two things I made note of um, in this one. Um, and one is this wonderful principle that uh, St. Irenaeus lays out here, that Jesus himself is our model when he says, um, uh, no man knoweth of that hour, not even the Son, um, only the Father. So if, if God's only begotten Son um, makes that statement that there are some things that um, it was not given to him to know. Um, it's sort of an a fortiori argument, isn't it? You know, how can we presume to be in a different place than our Lord there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You know, and the other thing that, that caught me, and I was I jumping ahead a century or so, um, but I remember after the Council of Nicaea, um, you know, they got, the church was able to get Arius sort of pushed off to the side. They condemned him and, um, he, you know, he died in the 330s when he finally came back from, um, from exile. Um, St. Irenaeus tells us it was in an outhouse in Constantinople where he died. <laughs> A little delicate there, um, but <laughs> but the next generation of Arians, um, the, these radical Arians that came after Arius, behaved very much like the Gnostics. Hmm. They said that the idea of God was perfectly simple and intelligible, and so they could describe what the unbegotten God is, what his qualifications or characteristics are. And I, I was struck by how the Nicene fathers, in pushing back, came to this point that you know we don't have the ability to push into the mystery of God's being. This is something that we accept by faith, and yeah. and it was it was these Arians that were saying, "Oh no, we can lay it out as a simple intellectual argument." So that sort of thing keeps hanging around. Well, I, when I think about <clears throat> when he's writing this, I think Origen is alive, a young man. Ah, uh, yes. And but has is not writing yet or you know he's a young man. But to me Origen is well, a, he, he might be just he might not I'm trying to think now. Maybe he's not quite there yet. Yeah, yeah. He, but he'd be if he, if he's still alive, he'd be a little kid at this point. Right. And, just yeah. so, in other words, that we. Yeah. Are, but Origen it jumps out in my mind is on the one hand, one of the most prolific writers in the history of the church, and 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 many people think one of the greatest writers yet. Uh, 
Yet, part of the problem was that he didn't follow the advice of Irenaeus, the humility of Irenaeus, and, 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 and went beyond Arius in his speculation, which is why we don't consider Origen a saint. Because That's of right. some of his speculations, he, he went beyond and, and got his feet dirty, dipping into mud he shouldn't have been uh, sticking his toes in. And I think that was also true of Aaron of Origen's teacher, who would have been alive at this time, because he Clement. was a bit, Clement Clement of Alexandria. Yeah. Uh, you know, a great teacher, but yeah, but pushing the envelope, and uh, especially pushing the envelope with the idea that you know where the Jews had a history through Moses in in the Old Testament, well, the Greeks must have their own Christian history through the. And so they're pushing the envelope too much to try and bring Greek philosophy. And so, you know, the, the humility and, and the caution that Irenaeus emphasizes is important. Very, that's a great point. That's a great point. The next section, Monsignor, and again, I'm going to read a big section. If you go to page 179, and, and I'm going to read it, I'll take... I'm going to read a long section, everybody, and uh, read it slowly. I won't read the whole thing. I've got some things highlighted here. But, Monsignor, then I'll, I'll invite you to make some comments. Um, but it, it continues on what we've just been saying. Okay. You know, on the one hand, maybe we should say we've already hit this topic enough, but but let's just hear it some more because in Section 7, he says, and if we say the same thing again of the substance also of the of matter, we shall not err, visa that God produced it. For we have learned from the scriptures that God holds the ruling place over all, but whence or how he produced it, neither hath any scripture set forth, nor ought we to indulge in fancying, forming infinite conjectures about God according to our own opinions, but this knowledge must be left to God. Go down a couple more sentences. And what is the nature of those which transgressed? What again of those which persevere? We must leave to God and his word. To whom alone also he said, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And then I'm going to jump down a couple more sentences. As therefore we know in part, so also ought we concerning all questions to give way to him who gives us grace in part. That eternal fire is prepared for sinners. Both the Lord openly affirmed and the other scriptures prove. And that God foresaw that this would be in like manner the scriptures prove, even as he prepared from the beginning eternal fire for those who shall transgress. But the cause itself of the nature of the transgressors, neither hath any scripture related, nor apostle said, nor hath the Lord taught. We must therefore leave this knowledge to God, as God himself doth that of the hour and day. So once again, Monsignor, here we have that same issue, if you will, but he, but he's applying it to a different theological question, and that is, you know, the the substance that we have, God created from nothing. Well, how did He do that? We don't know. And second of all, this issue of uh, 
you know, the, the reason why some people follow God and the reason why some don't. The reason why some are obedient and the reason why some transgress. There's a bit of a mystery there. And what their what the what their destinies are, um, as well. I think I read that in there too. I saw that in there too. That we we can't really speculate on that. Um, you know, like you quoted Origin a few minutes ago. Yeah, Origin didn't actually teach it, but he speculated that maybe heaven was full, hell was empty, and even Satan gets out at the end after yeah. after a millennium or whenever, however long he has to stay there. Um, and um, Irenaeus says, this is something we, we have no place to speculate about. Yeah, it seems to me that one of the, the key theologians at the Vatican Council uh, was pr proposing the same things. Uh, oh, yes. Yes. You hear it every once in a while. So that even in the 1960s, you know, we have this idea. But as Irenaeus says, we must therefore leave this knowledge to God as the Lord himself does that of the hour and the day. But he does say, but he says, that eternal fire is prepared for sinners, both the Lord openly affirmed and the other scriptures prove. And that God foresaw that this would be in like manner the scriptures prove, even as he prepared from the beginning eternal fire for those who shall transgress. But the cause itself of the nature of the transgressors, neither hath any scripture related, nor apostle said, nor hath the Lord taught. So in other words, folks, there's a heaven and a hell. There's going to be a judgment. We'll be held accountable how we've lived this life. Scriptures say, our faith in Christ, holiness. That says, and there's going to be a heaven, and there's going to be a hell. You know, Marcus, this would be a, quite a controversial point, so I bring it up he with hesitation. But I think this is a good time, too, to maybe just mention that that just in terms of popular piety, we need to be careful. Sometimes I meet Catholic people who um, think, if I do this, this, and this, <laughs> then I can get so-and-so sprung from purgatory. Um, I think that's going too far. Um, and, and I would think that the destiny of the, our departed souls, I mean, this is now in the hands of God and it's not connected with certain acts of devotion and piety that others might do on earth. Yeah. I know that I probably get an avalanche of criticism for that, but I just, I just raise it as a caution. It well, it, it opens itself up for so much abuse, which is the key abuse that led to the Reformation. The yeah. whole the very that was the very issue that led to the Reformation, because it the the core truth of the theology that that the Church teaches that through our penance. Offering up our penance can have an effect on the temporal uh, 
relief of punishment for those that have gone on. The church teaches the reality of, of that. And I, I, even as I explain it, it's kind of complicated because we don't talk about it anymore, or very often anymore, but that can be abused. And Luther rightly points out it was being abused. It, well, yes, it was. <laughs> That's a point of Luther's, a good part of what Luther was saying. And he wasn't the only one saying it. Erasmus was saying it. There were others at the same time saying it. So, but it hasn't gone away. Yeah, and I think all we want to say, or I want to say, is we we have an obligation to pray for the souls of the departed. And um, it's almost like, to put it in a lawyer's terms, it's almost like we're filing an amicus curiae brief. <laughs> But it's up to the supreme judge. He's going to make the decisions, and and um, and it's not up to. It's not based on what we do. Because think of some poor soul that might not have have not have any friend to pray for them. Uh, does that mean they're going to be forgotten and left alone? Uh, anyway, it's. No. I don't mean to go. No. One thing we've said in our work in the Coming Home Network is that for so many of us who come into the Catholic Church, realize that for for some of us, many generations have had no one in our family praying for our deceased. Because it wasn't part of our spiritual tradition. So now we come into the church and we've discovered that. So uh, we, you need to listen to the church on these issues and be careful of other people that have other opinions, especially on the internet today, about what we ought to do for mm. our, our departed loved ones. And uh, you listen to the church. And to be sure that what we're doing is true and not caught up in speculation. Like, like Irenaeus is saying, but this knowledge must be left to God. That's quoting Irenaeus. We need to quote that and learn that, but this knowledge must be left to God. It doesn't mean we don't pray for those, nor does it mean that, excuse me, I don't know whether you're going to go to heaven, Monsignor. I don't know that, but it ain't my business. It isn't my business to know that. My job is to surrender to Jesus Christ and to live a holy life, a, a humble life myself, and offer my prayers for my family and my friends and to be a witness to this faith and a witness to you as you're a witness to me and to pray for one another so that when we stand before God, uh, we experience his mercy. Our goal is to die in grace, which is why we have the the church and the sacraments and, and it's a, that's right yeah. as we say in the mass or as you say in the mass uh, you know don't look on our sins but on the faith of the church don't look on our sins but on the faith of the church we're in this beautifully put we're yeah. in this together so that was a big section on really just emphasizing this this point that Irenaeus wants to get across he's aiming it at the Gnostics but but he's really, as a humble bishop, saying it to anyone who would listen. Don't get caught up in battles over words and areas and things we don't know. And then if we turn over to the next page, it's interesting oh, that— yeah, Are you going to go to— uh, Oh, we're still in Section 7, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on page 181, okay, yeah, okay. we're still in—this yeah. will be in, in, in Chapter 29, Section 1, 1, page, interesting given some of the things we've just talked about, the speculation, I'm just going to pull one quote out of a bigger section uh, in the middle of page one, 
81, where Irenaeus says, the souls of the righteous repose in an intermediate place and state. Mm -hmm. The souls of the righteous repose in an intermediate place and state. Now, Monsignor, I admittedly pulled that out of a big, wider context, but I'm, I'm dropping it to you to, for the audience to, what was the issue that was going on with all the Gnostics that these intermediate states and places and, and all of that, that Irenaeus is, is addressing here? Well, I, you know, we'd have to go way back, you know, into book one to remember how um, in the, the Gnostic theory was that um, the, the elect, the Gnostic elect were children of, um, they were children of this higher class of eons. And, um, and that, that intermediate state, um, I guess, is a place which they talked about the intermediate state as a place where um, as sort of a holding pen for um, for them until all the all the eons can get all together and sort it out. And yeah, I, I was the trying bad to ones are defeated. You I, know? Was, I was trying to make it simple without us reading another long section, but I could read just the context in which Irenaeus, the beginning of chapter. 29 says, and now let us return to what remains of their theory, how they affirming that their own mother returns in the consummation within the Pleroma and receives the Savior as her spouse, while themselves, because they say they are spiritual, stripped of their souls and made purely intellectual spirits are to be brides of spiritual angels and the Creator because they say he is merely animal, must retire into their mother's place, and the souls of the righteous repose is in an intermediate place and state, then on and on and on. I mean, it just gets, the reason I didn't quote it, it just gets so goofy after a while. But again, it's caught up with their idea that that spiritual things are good and, and the physical things are bad and they can't intermingle, so they, they end up with these layers and then they even see God himself as the creator, as animal. So they got to have somebody higher than the God that we know. And it ends up, as Irenaeus has said in all these pages, that proved the, the absurdity of, of so that. But Marcus, um, remember, remember how the, the view of human nature that they, that they have is that there are three parts of a human person, um, the spirit, the soul, and the, um, and the body. And so the spirit, the spiritual part, that can go up high, they say. But there, the soul, um, that's the animal, that's sort of the animal spirit, if you will, um, that the part of the brain that doesn't actually think it just kind of manages the body um that goes into the intermediate place and then the 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 body burns the flesh burns and they were all going on as one of the major points of some of these gnostics is to say that they were spiritual and the catholic church was uh was psychic um or animal um you know 
they were the cerebrum yeah. <laughs> and the Catholic Church represents the Medusa oblongata, huh. if you will. <laughs> That's what I always use yeah. with my students trying to describe that. Um, that it was not, it was, you know, it was just the part that, that kind of managed the body, but it never got higher. Um, and I, I think that's probably a part of the context of what St. Irenaeus is going on about here. And he goes on to, in section two, um, I'm going to read two quotes from that. Because this oh, yeah. is before you go to yes yes before you go to two can I say one other thing about one yes um, so all given all that we've talked about about the soul then it, um, just a, about two thirds of the way down the page one eighty one there in section one um, uh, they contradict themselves when they come to say that souls mount upwards to their like in the middle state not because of their substance, but because of their conduct. Um, for those of the righteous, they affirm, find shelter there, while those of the wicked await the fire. For if because of their substance, all souls ascend to refreshment, then all belong to the intermediate state. And I think he's saying there that they're just inconsistent in what they're teaching, too, because um, if it's a question of, the nature of the soul over um, whether it has any merits or not, then all souls should be in that place. But they they still want to kind of divide up righteous souls and unrighteous souls. And but their 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 understanding of the nature of the soul doesn't allow them to do that. They're inconsistent. And as I've said, anyway, over to you. Yeah. Well, as I said, we remember three quotes from the last five or so pages. Such things we ought to leave to God. Yes. This answer then rests wholly with God. But this knowledge must be left to God. Those are three quotes from Irenaeus. And exactly mm -hmm. what we're talking about here, where the souls go and the spirit goes and where the body and this and that and who goes up there. I mean, as soon as you jump into areas, they end up, con they can't be consistent. Yeah, because we're delving in areas we don't know, and the other reason why I did bring this out also, and I was thinking about non-Catholics uh, who might read this, and they would say, "Well, wait a second, is this where the Catholics got their idea for purgatory? <laughs> An intermediate state?" And I think, as you and I talked earlier, well, the point is, it's kind of interesting that that both the fathers as well as even the Gnostics, as they tried to understand the afterlife, were recognizing an intermediate state for things. But it isn't defined yet, isn't understood. It, it's still a call for humility to recognize we're going into areas we don't know. But there's a sense in which it kind of makes sense. It seems to be a scriptural foundation in 1 Corinthians 3 about, you know, somebody being purged and all their wood, hay, and stubble is burned away, but what's left, the gold and the silver and the, the jewels remains. But if somebody, if, if they haven't done, if a, if a Christian hasn't lived a holy life, but they believe in Christ, everything's burned away, but at least they're saved. That's 1 Corinthians 3. So when does this purging take place? 
Does it happen in this life? Does it happen in heaven itself? If they're not going to hell, does it happen in heaven itself, or is it in the process? And we're, we're looking at a time in the history of the church when people are wondering these thoughts, coming up with different answers, right, yeah. Monsignor? You know, and I was, whenever I think about that question that you just posed about purgatory, I always come back to John Henry Newman, his, his um, poem that he wrote, The Dream of Gerontius. He wrote it as an Anglican, if I'm, I think that's when he wrote <laughs> yeah, it. But yeah. he, you know, he was such a great patristic scholar, and I, he seems to absorbed what absorbed what Saint Irenaeus is saying here that you can't penetrate these mysteries. We can't. We don't have the capacity to do it. So, in a very imaginative way, um, Gerontius dies. He was a faithful man. He dies. He goes to heaven. He sees our Lord, he's in love with him and he races forward, he wants to embrace him. And then he collapses into a puddle because he's not ready yet. So the angel scoops him up and takes him basically down to a hostel <laughs> and tucks him in and says, tomorrow when you wake, you will be ready. <laughs> and, um, and all this happens in a moment because because Gerontius can look back and he still can see his body on the bed on earth and the priest is praying the prayer and the family is gathered around him. And I just thought, you know, Newman was brilliant on this point. Um, we, we can't know. And um, in any event, we're outside of what we understand time to be. So, you know, how how can you... Yeah, when we get to these issues, like even purgatory, we recognize on the one hand we're we're entering into an area that we we don't know, but we have enough evidence, acorns as Newman would call them, in scripture and yeah. in tradition that would develop into an idea that makes sense that I guess you understand purgatory not as so much a third place, but as the vestibule leading into the what is it, the nave, what's the right term for it? You know, the, the outer hallway where you take your, it's the mud room where you take your boots off and, and you put on your white robe and it takes a while, you know, there's no time. So. Uh, That's a good point. Yeah. Cause there's, to put it in our terms, there's no death row in purgatory. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and again, yeah. this takes us back to what I, we, we quoted earlier where it says, um, uh, you would fain relate in words the births and productions of God himself, blah, 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 and of Christ, and that understanding them no other way than by what happens to men. So the, the danger is that as we try and envision a purgatory, a time when we're purged, when, when we're made worthy to enter into the presence of, of our holy God, we're limited to our human images. And that's where we get in trouble. And so that's why the, even the teaching of the church is to, to, to back off a bit and say, well, there's only so much we can say about that time. But what we do know is that for those that die in grace, so you don't go to heaven. I mean, you're not going to hell. That's, that's off. But there's a time, as Paul talks about, of purging. 
mm-hmm. so that we can enter into God's presence without embarrassment. And for some of us, that might take longer than others. You know, me, I'll be there for a Brazilian years, however many a Brazilian is. Uh, it, it's going to take a while. That's the way I understand it. And I see that as a great mercy. Because as Dante would say, you're not in the, you're not at book one. You're at least in book two. <laughs> and eventually book three. And, uh, you know, that's the journey. And, and this hasn't been defined yet by the time of Irenaeus. But you can see that it's kind of at the level where everybody realized that this is a reality, but how do you understand it? And the Gnostics had their, uh, their idea. But I do want to pull to the next quote on page 182, because it still deals with this question. As you were mm-hmm. referring to, Monsignor, about the, you know, the so- spirit and the soul and the body. And, and, uh, and here's what Irenaeus makes a very interesting argument. I'm just going to read two quotes from section two, the beginning and the ending. He says, for that in bodies are wrought the works of righteousness is evident. Um, and then down below, this we indeed believe, namely that such of our mortal bodies is, as keep righteous, God will raise up, making them incorrupt and immortal. For God is mightier than nature, and with him is the will because he is good, and the power because he is able, and the accomplishment because he is rich and perfect. The reason I just pulled that little quote out of there is it's just a really interesting thing. You know, the Gnostics were caught up in the spirit. That's the good part. And the soul, well, that's the animal part. That's kind of the in the middle. It only makes it halfway up. into, And then the body is just totally bad. It's going to get burned away. And Aaron says, but excuse me, but the righteousness that you talk about needing to do, you do in your bodies. In the body. And and uh, did you see the ver- between those two quotes that you read? Yes. Is this is this sentence? So will our discourse of the resurrection prove true and firm? So I mean, this is a beautiful passage on the nature of the resurrection. Um, it doesn't involve just the spirit or the soul, um, but all the three parts of a human person created by God to be united will be together in in eternity. I think we mentioned last week that one way, one of the strategies of the devil always seems to be a a stepped process. If he he tries to stop something, something, but if he can't stop it, then he tries to confuse the matter and, and just attack it and ridicule it and look at all kinds of things. And then in the end, if that doesn't work, then he floods the market with all kinds of con- contrary ideas. And it just seems like that's what he's doing here, for example, with, with the Christian understanding of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. You know, when for Christians to understand that in Jesus Christ, we, 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 the Apostles' Creed already says resurrection of the body. That's in the earliest of the creeds. It's there. It's there. Have you anybody thought why that? He doesn't just say we would believe in the resurrection, but it says resurrection of the body. Well, because it was being challenged. And the devil was challenging, getting all kinds of people to undercut the understanding of the afterlife. And, you know, I don't, not to harp on this point again, but this sort of Gnostic idea is 
still with us. Um, for instance, you have all of these pseudo intellectuals that make programs about how the spirit of Christ is alive, but the bones of Christ are laying somewhere in a tomb in Jerusalem. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that, that anyone in the church would even countenance an argument like that is, is shocking to me. But you, you encounter, I've, you know, I've met up with it in various churches, not so much in the Catholic church, but it's floating out there. there to me, there are at least three things of church history that shout. Number one, other than these modern speculation issues that you talk about, number one, in the history of the church, there aren't obvious places where anyone has ever claimed, here are the bones of Christ. No. Number two, Christians have never had a problem pointing out the bones of saints. Here are the bones of Peter, right? You went to the church. I didn't get to it because I was sick, I think. But you went. Oh, months, that's right. I remember that. Yeah. You went to St. Paul outside the wall. Well, why is it outside the wall? That's where his bones are. No problem with bones. No problem. We got tons of them. I've got. I've got a a reliquary sitting right here in front of me that has a little chip of the bones of six Ursuline sisters or whatever. That, you know, we don't have any problem with bones. But the third thing is, there's also no one that's ever said they've had the bones of Our Lady. That's right. And that point alone is one of the main reasons the church has said that we believe that she was assumed. Because there's no one in that time that came up with this is where Mary's bones are. Why didn't I have a reliquary of Mary's bones? You know, and those just shout historical realities of the full resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the assumption of Our Lady, and the reality that all these saints were waiting for the final judgment when we will be reunited again in the full resurrection. Okay. Yeah. All right, a couple more things. We've got a little bit more time because um, we'd like to get to a certain section here. Uh, on page one, 83, section, if I get this right, section 2. Um, I'm going to read the first and the last line of section 2. For the better person must be shewn such by his works. Whence then do they show themselves better than the Creator? And then the last sentence, Let them then show better than the Creator by works, for the better person must be proved such, not by what he is said to be, by what he is. Now again, the reason I pulled that out and want to look at it is in the context, you know, there these, these Gnostics are almost claiming themselves to be greater than the Creator. And Irenaeus goes through a long list of uh, what do you have on your list of accomplishments that is better than what the Creator has done? And there's a long list he goes through. But another point of this that I want to point out is that Irenaeus is very strong in recognizing the importance of our works, the importance yes. of, of as an imitation of our Creator. That's the point. 
the importance mm-hmm. of works. We will be held accountable for what we've done in this life. And Irenaeus doesn't get caught so much up in the theology of what does that mean in terms of justification and sanctification and works and grace and faith. He just basically is very scriptural of emphasizing we, what we do in this life and how we live in imitation of Christ is eternally important. Or as he ends that little sign, it's not by what he is said to be, by by what he is, but but by what he is. In other words, does our does our walk match our talk? <laughs> yeah, and I just I I think maybe it, if anyone is um, confused about this, what what we're dealing with with the Gnostics again, it's probably good just to just to be reminded of their, what they say their origin is. So they come from a higher entity. These, these Gnostic spirits come from a higher entity than the God who created the heaven and the earth. Um, that God, they say, just a, at the very top of page 184, they, they call themselves... They, they find themselves above the creator, calling themselves greater and better than God and themselves spiritual, but the creator merely animal. So, uh, you know, ontologically, they're putting themselves higher than, than, than the creator of everything that exists. And then what you pointed this out already, um, but as you know, when we go into section three here, Irenaeus then says, all right, <clears throat> If that's your position, then um, what have you done that's greater than the creator of heaven and earth? You know, we can see his works, but what have you done? Yeah. You know. um, yeah, there's so much in here we could uh, talk more about. He says in, in section five on page, as if there were two working tools or instruments, one of which the artisan has always had in hand and in use and doth. You know, he gets in this idea that we have the potter and the clay. Remember, guys, you know, we're the clay. He's the potter. You know, the he uses great analogies there, and, and uh, but because of time, we can't go into that. But there's one more thing before we close. I know, Monsignor, you wanted to to draw our attention to uh, that actually Keeble himself draws attention to, and that's on page 188 in section 7 of... Yeah. Yes. So um, you, we can see that. In fact, I'm going to just start this quote um, at the very bottom of page 187. Okay. Okay. Um, so this is this is Paul here. He, had, he uh, Paul is writing about his mystical experience, um, and he added whether in the body or out of the body, God knoweth, that neither might the body be imagined to be a partaker of the vision as though it also would have had a share in the things which he had seen and heard. Nor again might it be said that the weight of his body was the reason why he was not taken up further, but as though he were permitted so far even without the body to behold the spiritual mysteries, which are the works of God, who made the heavens and the earth and formed man and set him in paradise, 
to the end that such as, like the apostle, are very perfect in the love of God, might become sharers in the, in the contemplation. It's a very involved passage, that is. Um, and I was struck by that little footnote that, um, that Keeble had, um, the spiritual mysteries, and it's a little footnote eight there. Yes. Sacramenta. Um, he, he gives the Latin translation sacramenta. Um, well, that jumped out at me because in the church, that becomes a very technical term early. In fact, I, um, I don't have it here. It's in St. Paul, but there's a one, I have something called um, the patristic lectionary by Jeffrey Lamb, big, thick oh, volume. And Sacramento would be translating Musterion. And in the church's literature, this almost always is pointing us, it alludes to the sacraments in some way. And Marcus, here's what I read out of this. Um, um, when Paul said that he didn't know um, when he was caught up to the third heaven, whether he was in the body or out of the body, God knows. Um, I see Irenaeus here saying that against the Gnostics, that the body is part of this spiritual journey as well. It, Paul says the body, um, well, Paul doesn't say it specifically, but I think Irenaeus is implying that the body also shares in this mystical vision. Um, and, and though it would be wrong, I think, you're, we've talked about this before, it'd be wrong to see this as specifically speaking about a theology of the sacraments, because he doesn't go there. But it sort of lays the foundation that um, um, these spiritual mysteries um, that are accessible by grace to the human person involve body, soul, and spirit. And it seems to me that's a very important foundation for what we believe about the sacraments. Yeah. I, won't, I won't go on any more than that, but that, you know. Yeah, the, um, I hadn't thought about looking this up, um, but let's see here. Just a second, real quickly. 553... Um, oh, I'm looking in on, on what he talks about in terms of uh, baptism. Um, in, on page 253, excuse me, do this really quickly here because we're, we're getting late in time here. But in 253, um, I was trying to find out his sacramental view, for example, of baptism. And I know we'll get to that. But I guess going on with what you're saying, at this point in time in, in the history of the church, they recognize the importance and necessity of baptism and that through baptism, we are changed. And, and really, they're limiting, the, the writers of the church are limiting themselves to what is in Scripture, wherever it talks about 
enlightenment or new creation. Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. Well, the church recognized that, that we're talking about baptism here. Uh, you, you know, First Peter, you're saved through your baptism. Uh, Romans, you know, we've all been baptized. Uh, so, Irenaeus has a sacramental view of baptism, and he also has a very clear sacramental view of the Eucharist, the reality of the body and blood. It's very clear. Now, would that be expressed in the sacramental language we'll find later in Augustine or Thomas Aquinas? No, but there's a development here. But this relationship between that which is spiritual and that which is physical. And so you can see that right now Irenaeus is fighting that very battle with the Gnostics about the difference between that which is spiritual and that which is physical. It was a big, big, big issue. And out of that will come an affirmation of the church that in the sacraments God uses, it's a both and. But we're not quite there yet. But, you know, think, it seems like such a simple step to make from, you know, what we believe about the Eucharist, that Christ is truly present um, in his divinity and his humanity. And now here we come by faith um, and we receive the fullness of Christ in the sacrament. Um, and so that involves the whole of us. It's not just a spiritual encounter, um, but the whole of our person is involved in the reception of the sacrament. And I just think, I think that the, this passage sort of lays the yep. foundation for that in a way. Yep, yep. And uh, it would never be something questioned in the church, really, for a thousand years until Baron That's Gary's right. starts challenging it. But he, even he himself in the end said, no, I accept the church. And then in the 16th century Reformation, we have people challenging the reality of it until as even Luther himself, I think, wrote a, a, a someone wrote a book and found that during the Reformation, there, there came to be almost 200 different interpretations of the Eucharist. And if you will, it was almost returning back to the same battles Irenaeus was fighting, the, the connectivity between that which is spiritual and that which is physical, and how they came together. And as he talked about yeah. it here, the, the sacred mysteries, the sacred mysteries. So to me, again, that's the beauty of going back and looking at a book like this, a, a glimpse at a time in history as the Holy Spirit was guiding the church to understand uh, these important issues that sometimes we take for granted now all these years later. So we're going to end our discussion there, and then we'll pick up next week, and we'll begin with chapter 30, section 9 is where we'll in fact, we'll look at the entire okay. section nine. We'll pick up there, and then our goal is to finish book two in the next section so that then uh, in two sessions we'll start uh, in book three, uh, which is uh, contains a lot of great meat for us. Monsignor, would you close us today? I will, and um, I'd like to use this prayer, um, an ecumenical prayer um, for St. Irenaeus today.
In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, you upheld your servant, St. Irenaeus, with strength to maintain the truth against every blast of vain doctrine. Keep us, we pray, steadfast in your true religion, that in constancy and peace we may walk in the way that leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you, Monsignor. And thank all of you for joining us on this episode of Deep in History. We look forward to being with you again next week.